Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, the book of Revelation, chapter two, the conclusion. We are going to continue today in Revelation chapter 2 as we resume our discussion about the believing assembly at Pergamum. Now let's begin by rereading that particular section of, of Scripture. So um, open your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page one, uh, 1534, 1534. And we're going to read verses... 12 uh, onward. I'm going to read the whole rest of the, uh, the chapter from there. Page 1534, the second chapter of Revelation, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the Messianic community in Pergamum write, Here is the message from the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you are living. There where the adversary's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name. You did not deny trusting me, even at the time when my faithful witness Antipas was put to death in your town, there where the adversary lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have some people who are holding to the teaching of Bilam, who told Balak to set a trap for the people of Israel so that they would eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. Likewise, you too have people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn from these sins. Otherwise, I will come to you very soon and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody knows except the one receiving it. Now to the angel of the messianic community in uh, Thyatira, right here is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished brass. I know what you're doing. Your love, your trust, service, perseverance, and I know that you are doing more now than before. But I have this against you. You continue to, to tolerate that Isabel, Jezebel woman, the one who claims to be a prophet. But she's teaching and deceiving my servants to commit sexual sin, to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to turn from her sin, but she doesn't want to repent of her immorality. So I am throwing her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great trouble, unless they turn from the sins connected with what she does, and I will strike her children dead. Then all the Messianic communities will know I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and that I will give to each of you what your deeds deserve. <clears throat> but to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some people call the deep things of the adversary, I say this, I am not loading you up with another burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To him who wins the victory and does what I want, until the goal is reached, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To sum up what we covered last time, about Pergamum, I'll start with a sharp two-edged sword emitting from the mouth of God. <clears throat> and yes, to this point in Revelation, I am calling this divine being of the vision, the one who stands amidst the menorahs, God and not Christ. I do this not because it is not most probably Christ, but because to this point, 
Neither God nor John has given us any more than a series of descriptions and characteristics of the divine being, but no name. And since these descriptions and characteristics are a mix of standard ones used in the Bible for God the Father, along with the ones used by used for his son, thank you, uh, Yeshua, it would be presumptuous of us. It would make us poor students to jump to conclusions and to assign him a name when none is given. And John doesn't seem certain just who this being was beyond the fact that he was the God of Israel. The sharp two-edged sword is a much debated symbol, although it is most usually accepted as meaning God's word. Now in modern Christianity, that word is taken mostly to mean the New Testament. John could not have been thinking of the New Testament. It didn't yet exist. And it wouldn't for over a hundred years after his day. Two of the earliest church fathers, Victorinus and Jerome, took the double-edged sword to mean the law of Moses as the one edge and the gospel as the other. And I think that's probably correct. Then God tells the believers of Pergamum that he knows that uh, uh, they are living where the adversaries, Satan's, throne is. Now this is another controversial statement because it is mostly speculation about what exactly it is that God's indicating. Some think Satan's throne is the formal name of a pagan altar in the city of Pergamum. Others think it's just a nasty epithet that God is hurling at a horribly heathen city. What we can know for certain is that God considers Pergamum a detestably wicked place. And yet even in the midst of Sodom, when all odds, against all odds rather, at least a few held on to God's name, so it was at Pergamum. And when the persecutions against the believers at Pergamum became so great that it actually led to the death of one of them, a fellow named Antipas, they didn't cower and renounce their allegiance to God as Peter had once done. For this God commends them. Well, that's the good news. Now for the bad. Despite those good words that God has for them, he says he has a few things against them. And you know what? If when you're praying you hear that, shake a little bit. (laughs) And the first thing on his list is that some of the believers at Pergamum hold to the teaching of Balaam, who helped Balak to set a trap for Israel so that they would sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So the prohibition against eating food sacrificed to idols clearly goes back at least to the time of the Exodus, soon after the Law of Moses was enacted. Therefore the concept in Christianity that at the Jerusalem conference during Paul's day when Gentile believers were instructed not to eat food sacrificed to idols that this was some new commandment and unique to the New Testament rather to New Testament Christians Gentiles in particular that's just completely undone by this so the story of Bilam and Barak appears in the book of Numbers it's actually a few chapters long So we're not going to read it. However, I think it can be summed up by the words of Numbers chapter 25. Starting in verse 1 it says, Israel stayed at Shittim 
And there the people began whoring with the women of Moab. These women invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, where the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. And with Israel thus joined to Baal Peor, the anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel. So what is this connection between the passage in Numbers and what some believers at Pergamum are doing that God is condemning? They are teaching that a believer can eat anything and that the laws of sexual immorality just don't apply to them. And while it is true that the actual words read eat food that has been sacrificed to idols adding this to the accusation of holding to the teaching of Bilam indeed means simply eating like the pagans eat. That's what it means. Now I explained last week that it's necessary that we understand this from the Jewish mindset in which it's written or we're going to miss the point. For a Gentile, for a Gentile Christian, food typically means any edible thing. For a Jew, throughout the Bible, food means something quite different. It means only those things that God has declared are suitable as food for his worshipers. But even those things that God has declared in the Torah as permissible for food can become ritually unclean through several different means. And therefore, it's rendered inedible. One of those means to ruin otherwise perfectly permissible food is to sacrifice it to idols. Am I saying that all believers... Jew and Gentile are required to follow the food laws as found in the laws of Moses. Are we to eat kosher? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes, unequivocally yes. Any questions? The one caveat I would place on that is that we are to eat Biblically kosher as compared to rabbinic kosher. The food laws of the Bible are contained in just a few paragraphs. They're hardly difficult. They're not very restrictive. About the worst of it for modern Christians is that we're not to eat pork or shellfish. But precious little else we would even want to eat is prohibited in the law of Moses. On the other hand, the Jewish laws of Kashrut created by the rabbis are contained in their own separate volume in the Talmud and are very complex and highly restrictive. We know that at least some of these traditional Jewish laws about food were already well established by Christ's day because he got into more than one debate with the Pharisees over them. The bottom line is this. The teaching of Bilam, Balaam, by some within the Pergamum congregation as it concerns food, <laughs> sorry, it's exactly what the church has been teaching for centuries. Eat anything you want. That's the teaching. That's what Balaam was teaching. Now in modern times, we witness the rise and popularity of something else. The popularity and acceptance of homosexuality, transgender, as great swaths of the church have begun to teach that those biblical sexual prohibitions are primitive and outdated, just like the eating ones are. So they don't apply to us modern believers. Gay churches are common. Gay ministers are ordained. Gay marriages are performed. All restrictions against sex sin are being eroded. Tolerance for those identifying as part of the LGBTQT movement is taught from the pulpit in many denominations today. 
the teaching of Bilam is alive and well within Christianity. Today, just as it was in Pergamum, in John's era. And in verse 15, God also tells Pergamum that there are those within their assembly who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And since this issue of the Nicolaitan influence was mentioned in the letter to Ephesus, clearly it was widespread. At least it was in Asia. And I'm not going to repeat everything I had to say about the Nicolaitans concerning Ephesus. However, I will have you recall that there is more than one view about who these people might have been. Now, a relatively new view that just might make the most sense of any of these views is that the word, pay attention to this, the word Nicolaitans comes from the Hebrew term Nikal. And it simply means we will eat. We will eat. In order to translate Nikol, the Greeks invented a sound-alike word, Nikol, Nikolaton, the Nicolaitans, which then centuries later led to the invention of an English sound-alike word, Nikolaton, Nicolaton. If so, then it probably indicates another group of believers who held to a teaching of having no food restrictions whatsoever. The difference between them and the teachers of Balaam, Balaam seems to be that the Nicolaitans didn't go so far as to also overthrow the, law, the laws of sexual immorality. Now, I'm inclined to accept this because... And I I don't think it's a coincidence that the issue in verse 14 is eating food sacrificed to idols. Then in verse 15, it's that the Nicolaitans who refused to accept any eating restrictions are condemned. God condemns them both. He calls these behaviors sin. And he says that if those who practice these things continue, God's going to make war against them. Man, that's a bad deal. The means God says he's going to use to wage war on these heretics is the sword of his mouth. Now it's a little bit hard to understand the sense of this until we remember the Bilam and the Balak story that was just referenced in verse 14. As he was on his way to help Balak curse God's people, Bilam was confronted by a fearsome angel. What was the angel holding? A sword. The angel had a sword in his hand when he was told not to curse God's people. Some years later, Bilam was killed by a sword for his wickedness. And since I believe that Victorinus and and Jerome were correct to say that John's double-edged sword vision symbolized the law and the gospel, it fits that this sword is what God would use to judge and condemn to eternal damnation the teachers of Bilam in Pergamum and the equally evil we will eat folks the Nicolaitans all I can say from all this is that for those who believe that obedience to God's commandments is optional and that Christians are free to eat anything we want to without consequence notice what's being said in this letter What God's attitude and threat is not to pagans, to the believers at Pergamum. Believers. Now I've known a number of people who grudgingly began to eat biblically kosher because they kind of ran out of reasons not to. They weren't entirely convinced or happy about it, but pretty soon after starting to eat kosher, they came to realize that the issue wasn't ever really about 
what, whether God has ordained what believers are to eat and not eat and that he's serious about it. The issue was a personal stubbornness that simply could not accept the notion of anyone restricting them from foods they'd always eaten and loved. The issue was and remains for most of us anyway an issue of trust and obedience. That's the issue. Now the closing of this letter is the same as each one of them. It contains an exhortation to hear and to heed what the Lord is telling them. And for those who turn from these sins that they've been accused of, there's going to be two rewards. The first reward is they'll eat from the hidden manna. Now we're familiar with the manna, which literally means, what is it? That rained from the, the sky for the entire time that the Israelites were traveling on their exodus from Egypt. Now manna is often characterized in the Bible, and by the way by Hebrew sages and rabbis, as the bread of life. And Christ too is said to be the spiritual bread of life. Thus the visible manna was that which miraculously fed the Israelites for 40 years and the hidden manna is the Messiah, Yeshua. The second reward is that the overcomer will receive a white stone with a new name written on it. Now in John's era, a white stone was the typical means of admission. It was literally an admission ticket to an event or to a public festival. And in John's era, they would put a name on it. And in a public trial, a white stone meant a vote of acquittal. A black stone was a vote of guilt by each jury member or judge. Thus, for a victorious believer to receive a white stone with a new name written on it, that is, overcoming his sins by repentance and then changing his behavior, this meant that the believer is so thoroughly vindicated by his obedience by his trust in God that his old identity will become a thing of the past and he or she will receive a new and pure identity. I mean, what a hope we have in this. What a future awaits us. But there is a downside. This hope and future is only for the believer who corrects these sins. Not for everybody. Only for those who correct those sins. Those who do not will not eat of the hidden manna and they will not receive the white stone with a new name on it. This doesn't mean that such a believer only gets now just partial benefits of salvation. It means they don't get any. means their salvation has been repudiated. Now letter number four. This is to the Messianic community of Thyatira. Now Thyatira, southeast of Pergamum, lays on the same main thoroughfare as do the other six congregations. And we hear of Thyatira in Acts 16 as a stop on Paul's missionary tour. There, it was there that he met and evangelized a woman who would become the first recorded person to accept Christ during that tour. Lydia. She was a seller of purple. And purple, that dye purple, was what Thyatira was famous for at that time. It was a very small village actually, totally different than the magnificent cities and centers of learning that were Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And yet, there too, existed a Jewish population. And it had a synagogue. And now, an established population of believers. 
And the letter opens with God once again giving no name, only sticking with descriptions and, 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 and characterizations. And so here in verse 18, we're going to see the only mention of the term Son of God in the entire book of Revelation. Here and nowhere else. Now we've talked about this before, but it's, it's too important to bypass. It is standard Christian thinking and theology to say that the term the Son of God refers not only to Christ, but also to his deity. Son of God, it is said, is what tells us that Yeshua is a divine human. However, in reality, that same term is used in several instances in the Old Testament and was applied to several Israelite kings. Over time, it became understood that the Son of God was primarily aimed at indicating a royal descendant of King David. A descendant who would become the new king of Israel. A Messiah. So that is exactly how we should take it to mean here. The message to open this letter is then from a king. A Davidic king. And what we must grasp is that this term refer, refers to the human nature of Messiah. It has nothing to do with divinity. It refers to his power, to his authority, to his kingship. But as has become typical in the Revelation letters, the description of the, of the divine uh, being doesn't end right there. The next words are whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished brass. Well, those are word-for-word -word descriptions of the Ancient One, the Father, that we find in Daniel and Ezekiel. So once again, we have a description in the Son of Man that sure seemed to nail it down that this divine being is Christ. Then the curveball is thrown. And we have a further description. But that one's always been reserved for the Father. So the mystery continues. Now this letter contains the most profound commendations and the most damning condemnations to exist among the seven. And it centers on the damage to this congregation that one particular person has perpetrated. And apparently that person has not been seriously challenged for some reason or another. The Lord says that this congregation's love and trust and service and per perseverance are not only good but they are doing even more good now than before. And I want to point out that the only context we can take their service in is outbound ministry. Thus, unlike Ephesus, that lost that love they had at first, Thyatira has maintained it and even grown it. You know, a term that private businesses in the military uses is called mission creep. You ever heard of it? It means that whatever the original mission was, over time it has morphed. It's changed into something else and, and, and it's happened generally imperceptibly as it was occurring. Mission creep. And I think among believers that situation most often manifests itself in a congregation becoming inward-looking instead of outward into the local community. And yet, there is danger in being too anxious to be outward-looking because suddenly the ministry can begin to import people who harbor a very different attitude that bring in spiritual conditions that 
are harmful. And it, it goes against the goal of the congregation and the leadership. And if allowed to, these newcomers can cause a great deal of tribulation and disruption. And worse, they can lead people away from the truth by offering trendy new thoughts that don't really reflect godly wisdom. Now the person in Thyatira that is leading some in this congregation astray is called simply that Jezebel woman. And what is she teaching the people to do? She's teaching them to commit sexual sins and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Anyone catching a repetitive theme in these letters? Sex sin and food issues seem to be rampant and also at the top of the list of things that God hates. Yikes. By comparing this unnamed woman to Jezebel, who was the wife of the wicked king Ahab, the charge then is that she is a supporter of idolatry and paganism and everything that's anti-God. Jezebel's goal was to rid Israel of God worship. You know what? She was well on her way to doing it. So we must assume that this Jezebel woman's goal, who I don't think its name was also Jezebel, was similar. Or maybe she herself was just deceived. Well, the watchword of the 21st century is tolerance. Tolerance is today hailed as the greatest virtue a society or an individual can hold. Tolerance. Anyone or any nation labeled as intolerant is seen as an enemy of humanity and of progress into an enlightened age. And not surprisingly, tolerance has crept into Christian institutions as an important virtue as well. Very recently, I visited a Christian college where a statement of welcome, tolerance, and acceptance for people of all sexual orientations was prominently placed at their entry doors. Tolerance of itself is not an evil thing. It's what we tolerate that matters. And I'm sad to say that in contemporary times, essentially, the counter-argument to all biblical morality is tolerance. To speak against homosexuality, that's intolerance. To be against abortion on demand, that's intolerance. In fact, to accuse anyone of evil is intolerance. The otherwise good people of Thyatira were tolerating a malicious cancer in their midst. Apparently because they thought they should. And it has caused now God to react by issuing a stern warning and a threat against not just the perpetrator, but the entire assembly. So how did this Jezebel woman wind up getting such influence in this congregation? It was primarily because she claimed she was a prophetess. A person claiming prophetic knowledge has always been magnetic for God's people. By New Testament times, you know, the term prophet had actually evolved a little. For a worshiper of God who held fast to the Bible, it more meant now a teacher of God's word. Because in general it was believed among Jews that the ear of the prophets was over. And any communication from God was contained in the scriptures that were already written and closed. However, there were those, and there will always be those, who honestly think that they are prophets along the lines of Daniel and Ezekiel. People who believe that God regularly shows them the future or gives them special knowledge, special secret knowledge. 
It's been a very long time since I've spoken on this, so I'm going to detour here, here for just a moment. The biblical test for a self-proclaimed prophet is very simple. They can never be wrong. If they claim that God told them thus and so and it doesn't happen, they are a false prophet. There's no second chances. That must always be our test as well. Nothing they say from a prophetic nature should ever be taken seriously if they're ever wrong. Or they try to sell us on something that's not tangible and provable. I can't tell you how many folks send me emails and letters and occasionally tell me something in person that the Lord told them to tell me. And the common preamble to their prophecy is always, I have a word for the Lord, uh, from the Lord for you. So I'm going to say now what I've said to this congregation years ago. Think twice about approaching me because I'm not likely to believe you. If the Lord has something He wants to reveal to me, He'll reveal it to me. He won't be using a self-professed prophet as an intermediary. Now this, of course, is not the same thing as wise and godly counsel, which we should all be open to. Leading up to my intolerant declaration, I had so many prophets telling me what was going to happen about any number of things, you know, I'm not sure I can recall any of it ever happening. But that didn't seem to ever deter these folks because they sincerely thought they were doing good. They kept on making prophecies and kept on being wrong. And many of them had followers who would go around telling others about what so-and-so prophesied because it sounded so lofty or exciting. The Bible says that so serious is the charge for claiming to be a prophet, a prophet of God, but it's not true, is that these false prophets are to be stoned to death. True prophets are anointed by God and they are rare. And they are accepted by the religious leadership and the people as prophets. And they prove to be correct. Even more, prophets seldom even wanted to be prophets. In a short time, those who didn't fight against the appointment too hard at first tried later to do anything to get out of it. It was a tough job. Most prophets eventually became hated. And they lost their families and their friends. They were run out of towns and villages. They lived much of their lives alone in poverty. Not because their prophecies didn't come to pass. It's because they did. And these prophecies were rarely a bucket full of good news. So this Jezebel woman, a false prophet, had duped plenty of people in this congregation, including the leadership. And the gist of her teaching was to deny the word of God and to deceive people into believing that God personally gave her new laws and commands that apparently in many ways countermanded the old laws and commands. And the two most serious in God's eyes were her advocating eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual sin. Now let's understand something. At least partly due to Paul's teaching, most believers at that time didn't believe that these idols were any more than inanimate pieces of wood and stone. They had no power. There was no God behind them. 
Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 8. So as for eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that as you say, an idol has no real existence in the world and there is only one God. So Paul's teaching was that food laid on an altar of an idol doesn't change one bit. Food doesn't change its form. Nothing supernatural happens to it that would either give you power or maybe alternatively make you sick. But it is also the same for food, permissible food, in general, that's not offered to an idol. There's nothing magical about food that's kosher versus food that's not. Nothing. People have for generations come up with all kinds of reasons for eating kosher that include claims of longer lifespans or that certain non-kosher meats are essentially slow-acting poison to our systems or that eating kosher is God's health plan. None of this proves out. None of it. So then why do we eat biblically kosher? comes down to only one thing. Trust and obedience. That's it. We follow the biblical eating plan because as believers we trust God and we obey Him. It's not to gain a physical benefit. And to a degree, eating as God has ordained sets us apart from others who eat anything that pleases them. We eat as God says to because it pleases Him. Verse 21 says that this Jezebel woman, well, she was given time to repent. To stop this sinning. But she consciously, willfully decided she did not want to. Apparently somebody in the congregation had the guts to confront her and tell her what she was doing was evil. Thus she wasn't naive about her behavior. But the leadership didn't seem to have the similar guts to put her out in order to save the other believers. Those believers she was infecting with her lies. Why wouldn't the leadership act? Probably the age-old reason. The woman was popular. She had a following. The leadership didn't want to rock the boat. They also likely confused love with tolerance. Verse 22 is what God is going to do. Because the congregation leadership did nothing. First, for the woman herself, God's going to make her very ill, presumably with a fatal disease. Second of all, for those in the congregation who are her followers, they're going to receive great troubles. It's not defined, it's just great troubles. And third, God will try to strike her children dead. And those of the congregation who follow her are called adulterers. Because a believer cannot be in union with God and with evil at the same time. You gotta pick. Adultery, adultery is essentially breaking faith in what was vowed to be a monogamous relationship. However, there is a level of hope for this group of believers because while they follow her, they are not so far gone that they can't be brought to their senses. As Yeshua's brother James counsels, my brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth, and then someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death and cover many sins. The reference to the woman's children is not referring to her actual biological offspring, although it could include some of them. 
but rather it is those of the congregation who have been trained by her and they are fully committed with the way she's taught them now they have no hope their fate eternal death is already sealed let me say one more time this is God dealing with believers not with pagans now I know this seems to be terribly harsh but God is good to tell us exactly why he's being so severe with this woman and with her followers because at the end of verse 23 God says then all the messianic communities will know I'm the one who searches hearts and minds and that I will give to each of you what your, de what your deeds deserve this is an attribute of God that we hear about all throughout the Old Testament he will dispose of many evil people for the, protect, for the sake of protecting the remainder of his people who have not yet fallen. And the hope is also that people far and wide will fear God when they hear about what he did. And that this fear will keep them from doing the same even if they have an inclination to do so. Back to some good news. God says he recognizes not every believer in Thyatira has accepted the teachings of this Jezebel woman and have not adhered to something called the deeper teachings of the adversary. So for them, God says he'll apply no further burden and if they can just hang on to what they know the truth is, they're going to be just fine. It's not agreed among Bible commentators what the deeper teachings of the adversary or Satan means. I think, however, that considering that it was the Gnostic philosophers that had great influence at this time, and we know from other documents that the Gnostics were a constant thorn in the side of believing congregations, that likely these deeper things were indeed based on Gnostic philosophies. Gnosticism invariably touts the human intellect as supreme. And so intelligent people are said to gain greater spiritual understanding than ordinary people. So what is this about placing no further burden on the believers who have held fast to the truth? have not been seduced by that Jezebel woman and her false teachings. Now apparently these believers were suffering significantly and they were under constant strain because of their faith and the determination to continue in the truth. Thus whatever misgivings the Lord might have had with Thyatira, the huge upheaval they were about to endure when they eject this woman and her followers, that was going to be enough. Listen, when you do that, church, there's a price to be paid for that. It is not going to be nice and easy. This congregation was about to be torn apart. Matters like this do not resolve themselves quickly or easily. But this upheaval is a necessity for the spiritual survival of the still faithful. Now the ending of this letter is a little different than the others. God has much more to say. He says that for those of Thyatira who remain steadfast, they will rule with him during the next age. Verse 27 is actually taken from Psalm 2. Turn your Bibles to Psalms 2. Turn your Bibles to Psalms 2 to show you this. This is important when we're reading Revelation. Very important. That we see where this is coming from. Psalm 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 791. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 2. 
require the nations in an uproar, the peoples grumbling in vain. The earth's kings are taking positions, leaders conspiring together against Adonai and his anointed. They cry, let's break their fetters. Let's throw off their chains. He who sits in heaven laughs. Adonai looks at them with derision. Then in his anger he rebukes them, terrifies them in his fury. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, you are my son, today I became your father. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod, shatter them like a clay pot. Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve Adonai with fear. Rejoice, but with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish along the way. When suddenly his anger blazes, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now this is recognized by Jews and Christians as a messianic psalm. In Christianity, the belief is that this is speaking about a time that we call the thousand year reign of Christ. And by the way, I agree with that. This psalm could not be more appropriate in the context of Revelation chapter 2 because it talks about anti-leaders. Anti-leaders who conspire against God's chosen leaders. It talks about people wanting to break the fetters, throw off the chains of those who demand that all people live in accordance with God's, law, God's laws and commandments. Is this not what the Jezebel woman was trying to do? Throw off the chains. And Revelation chapter 2 then finishes up with the divine being saying that just as he has received authority from his father, he will also give his father the morning star. Now from a purely worldly standpoint, the morning star visible in the sky is the planet Venus. But here, the meaning is less clear. In Revelation 22, verse 16, Yeshua identifies himself as the morning star, but says it in the context of being the Messiah reigning over God's kingdom on earth. So, without other evidence or a strong alternative other than allegory, I think it's best to accept that meaning here to end Revelation chapter 2. So, we'll begin chapter 3 and the Messianic congregation at Sardis next time.